welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. So my name is Micah, if we haven't met, and uh, here goes nothing. Some people might argue here goes everything, but I made a little barrier. So in case any of you didn't like me, I said something you didn't like, you could throw things, but I could duck. Uh, we are, my family and I are fresh off of a two and a half week trip to the West Coast, and uh, we've put almost 5,000 miles on our Honda Pilot. Uh, I'm getting a little bit of a, a cold, and some would argue it's maybe on the eve of a very important teaching. Others might argue you sat for 5,000 miles in a car and ate mostly sunflower seeds. <laughs> I would say it's probably a combination of both. But uh, we are wrapping up a series called Lost in Translation. We've been c- walking in this over the summer, looking at difficult passages in Scripture and just trying to make sense of them, trying to come to them honestly and authentically and, and rigorously. And so we have, in true awakened form, we have saved the hardest and maybe the most contested for last. Uh, If you were here last summer, we did a series on the windows in the the building here, and we saved our good friend Christopher Colombo for last. So I figured we'd do that again. Um, We are going to be engaging in a two-week kind of mini-series on human sexuality and, and really how we're navigating this complicated and nuanced conversation at Awaken. Um... About six years ago, I sat in a coffee shop with a friend of mine, a colleague, and uh, heard the story of um, someone who was a part of our launch team and somebody who helped start this church as she shared with me that um, she came to the conclusion that she thinks she was gay. And um, I don't know that I've been the same since then. I think at that point in my life, I believed what I believed because my tradition told me what I believed. Um, And quite frankly, um, I had gotten all the way through seminary and all the way through being a pastor and all of these things and never actually studied the passages in Scripture for myself, um, of which there are six, in case you're wondering. Um, And now, my friend, someone who I loved a great deal, someone who babysat my kids, um, shared this with me. Uh, I think it's really easy at times to have opinions and beliefs and convictions about something that is completely divorced from reality or people. I think a lot of times we have thoughts and opinions and convictions about things and and somehow they, and I had gotten to that point and was able to have some semblance of an idea of what I thought without uh, it actually mattering. And that was no longer the case. And I think for many of us, what was once way under the radar, no less real, but for many, under the radar is just not anymore. And I think it's it's really actually my conviction and belief that uh, the world is watching and waiting for the church to see how they will respond. And for many, they have seen the church respond, and it has broken their hearts. Uh, They're wondering if this group of people will resemble the person that they follow, this Jesus, who says to the tax collector, the most hated, one of the most hated people in society, you know what, I'm coming to your house today for dinner. And to the woman caught in one of the most scandalous situations one can find themselves to say, woman, there's nobody here, neither do I condemn you. Um, 
In a study recently done by uh, some folks charged by the Barna Group in a book called Unchristian, they asked a, a whole host of non-Christians, people who didn't believe in Jesus, and they said, what do you think of the church and Christians? 91% said anti-gay. 91% of people asked thought that the church mostly, firstly, was anti-gay. And then following that, the most common responses were judgmental and hypocritical. And gang, that should, that should really bother you if you follow Jesus. Uh, it bothers me. So whatever you believe about this particular topic this morning of human sexuality, um, I'm not going to ask you to move. I'm not going to ask you to change. I'm not going to try to sway you one way or the other. But what I am going to say is how you believe what you believe is more important than what you believe. Let me say that again. How you believe what you believe, I would argue, is more important than what you actually believe. Because you can say you believe something and have not love, and Jesus says what you have is nothing. And Paul repeats it. How you believe what you believe. How you hold your convictions. And so church, we must do a better job. As your pastor, I exhort you this morning to begin a journey if you have not begun one yet. To study and listen and learn and engage and dialogue and befriend in a way that maybe you haven't yet. I have to set a few disclaimers and a couple of assumptions, I think, at the, at the start of this before we even get into what I want to talk about today. Uh, I have eight pages of notes today. I usually have five, sometimes six. So um, there's a lot I, I, I feel like we need to say or I need to say. So first and foremost, uh, a couple of things I'm not going to do in this series. I'm not going to answer every question that you have. Um, we're going to take two weeks on this, which is woefully inadequate. And uh, I can promise you that I will not get to everything. There's a guy named N.T. Wright that says, if I didn't say it in this 30-minute talk, it's probably in one of my 25 other books that I've written. So I don't have 25 other books, but if I don't say it in this talk, it's not because I don't think it's important. It's not because I don't believe it. It's not because I haven't thought about it. It's just that I can't say it in 30 minutes or 40 today. So that's why life groups and other opportunities outside of Sunday morning become all the more important. We begin with the assumption at Awaken that this is the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. So I encourage you, if you're not involved in community in some way where you can continue conversation, that you should think about what that looks like, because it's important. Um, I will, we will also not study every scripture in the text this morning on this issue. Again, I said there were six. Jesus never talked about it. Um, we're not going to study all of them. There are uh, lots of books, of which I have a number of them up here. I'd ask that you take pictures of the front instead of checking them out because I have loaned too many books that never came back and quite frankly I like my books. So if you'd like to see any of the books that I've been reading or that have, are informing my journey you're welcome to come up here. Some of them are popular level, some of them are scholarly and they can, they've done much better and more depthful study of the six passages than I could ever do. So we're not going to study every scripture exhaustively. We are, I'm also not going to tell you what I believe on this matter. Now, that may come as a shock to some of you. You might think, well, come on, why in the world are we doing this? We all want to know what you think. I'm going to tell you some things that I think, but I'm not going to tell you my conclusions on this, and here's why. I have been on a journey of study and of exploration and of questioning and of wondering and of conversing for six years, like in earnest, and I'm the pastor. <laughs> 
Oftentimes at church and in religious communities, like what does the pastor say becomes the de facto answer for most of the people who don't want to do the work, if we're honest. And so my belief about something is in, in line with whatever the pastor says. And um, that's dangerous and not wise. This is, I would argue, the defining question for my generation. For some, it's been slavery. For some, it's civil rights. For others, it was women. For others, it was AIDS. I think for my generation, it's human sexuality. And so the most loving and pastoral thing I can do for you is to enable you to do your own work. And so I'm not going to tell you my convictions for that reason and because this format actually does it, it, does it a disservice because I'm the only one speaking right now. And this is a conversation. It has to be. It has to be. So I'm not going to tell you what I think. Um, here's a couple of assumptions that I begin with this morning. These are assumptions I have. You may not agree with me, but you need to know that this is where I'm coming from. Number one, there is a sexual ethic in the Bible that I think reflects the nature of God and God's relationship with us. Regardless of where you fall, regardless of your conviction on this matter today, I begin with the assumption that there is an ideal in Scripture for human sexuality and how we engage our sexuality. And that ideal is celibacy in our singleness and monogamy in our covenantal marriages. Regardless of whether you're gay or straight or where you fall in this issue, I think that this sexual ethic still applies. It's an assumption I begin with. Said differently, the creational ideal that I see in Scripture for the giving of oneself fully in sex mirrors the covenantal faithfulness that we see God exemplifying all throughout the Scriptures. That's an assumption I begin with. Being or identifying outside of gender norms, so lesbian, gay, trans, uh, bi, queer, questioning, is not inherently sinful. So someone could say, I am gay and I am a Christian. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. So to identify as one of those things is not inherently sinful. Some people would argue that it is. I do not. With that, gender identity or sexual preference is a case-by-case -case situation. People always ask, like, well, how does someone come to the conclusion that they're gay? Is it nature or is it nurture? Right? Is it science and biology or their circumstance? And to that I would say, yep. I have met people who'd, who, like, who grew up in loving, faithful, heterosexual, Christian homes whose parents knew from the moment they could speak that they were gay. And I've met people for whom their experience and their life circumstances drastically altered their experience of sexuality and influenced their choices that they make subsequently. So is it nature or is it nurture? Yes. It's a cocktail of both in every situation. And so to apply any kind of a pat answer is naive and not helpful. So I don't begin with that assumption. I begin with an assumption that affirming, and pause, time out, I'm going to use the language of affirming and non-affirming, recognizing it's clunky, it's not nuanced enough, it's pejorative in one case and not in another. I get it. But for our sake and for our time and for brevity, I'm going to ask you to allow me to do that, okay? So, affirming people are no less committed to Scripture than non-affirming people. Sometimes when you have this conversation, and this comes up, the, the sort of grenade that's lobbed across the table is that people who affirm same-sex relationships are less committed to Scripture, or that the Scriptures is not authoritative for them. To which I would again say, naive, short-sighted, and not helpful. Friends, 
What does the Bible say? That's the easy question. There are six passages. I could tell you what they are. You could read them yourselves and you could see them black and white, two-dimensional on a page. It's not hard. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? That's the question. How do we interpret the text? People who say, well, the Bible says it. I believe it. That's enough. Come on. Not true. We all pick and choose. We all pick and choose when we come to the text. Now, people who aren't honest about that, I'm not interested in having a conversation with often. People who are recognized like, okay, I do. I pick and choose what's literal, what's not. What's the criteria by which I do that? Now we're having a conversation. How do you interpret the text is the important question. People who affirm same-sex relationships often are no less committed to Scripture or the the authoritative nature of the Scriptures in their lives. They've just interpreted the passages differently than you do if you're not affirming. So to assume that, I think, is false. It's, it's false, and it's not helpful. So I, I begin with the assumption that people who affirm same-sex relationships are no less committed to Scripture. Some of them are, sure, but there are some people who don't affirm same-sex relationships who don't, uh, uh, the, the Scriptures isn't very high for them either. You see what I'm saying? So that's an assumption I begin with. Here's what I hope for in this, in this series. I hope that your compassion and your capacity To walk a mile in someone else's shoes grows. My hope and my prayer for you and for us as a community is that your capacity to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes grows. I would argue that spiritual maturity is directly connected to one's ability to have empathy and compassion for somebody who is different than them. The wisest, most mature people that you know in your lives, they have figured out that they don't have all the answers and that it's actually helpful and honest and authentic and dignifying to try to understand what the other person is thinking and why they think what they think and to walk a mile in their shoes. That's called maturity. Paul asks, he prays for that for his churches that he writes letters to. I pray that you would grow in your maturity. So I hope and I pray that your capacity, my capacity, grows in our ability or our ability grows to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. And then that we reserve or maybe even better, we deny our inclination to judge, to stand over and above. What I mean by judge is not to discern whether or not you should eat that or not. Or, right? We do that every day. There's helpful ways in which we judge. But the way the scriptures talks about it is to stand over and above, to be the final say-sower, to judge. So we grow in our capacity to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, and we deny the, the inclination, the desire that's in all of us to judge, to be the final say-so. And we entrust that desire or that action to the only one who's able to do it anyways, to God. I also hope and pray that you grow in your knowledge and that your convictions are informed and held with an open hand. Church, ignorance is not an option. If you follow Jesus... And you can't tell me any of the passages in, which, in the scriptures that talk about human sexuality. I would encourage you as your pastor, as lovingly as I possibly can, that that is not good enough. You need to move. You need to grow. You need, you need. Shame is never my deal. That's my prayer for you. That's my hope for you. As a follower of Jesus, that you would have thoughtful, informed, articulate responses to conversations like this that you would grow in your knowledge. And then, friends, that whatever conviction you have, that you would hold it with an open hand. 
By that I mean that you would be willing to say, here's what I think about this, and I might be wrong. I might be wrong. If I asked you everything that you believed 10 years ago, I guarantee you there's something that you would have said 10 years ago is true, and today you would say, not so much. Good for you, you're growing! Yes, that's awesome! You've experienced more of God now than you did then. That's fantastic! How, I mean, who, that's so silly to think like today, I've got it locked up, throw away the key, I don't need to know anything else because I know it all. Nobody would say that because logically it's ridiculous, and yet, we don't give ourselves the freedom to change our minds on something. Right? Why? Well, I fear, because if you get it wrong, that's not God's heart. So my hope and my prayer is that you grow in your knowledge. That you would be willing to say, here's what I believe, but I could be wrong. That's mature. I hope and I pray that Awaken continues to be a safe place. We started this church with the desire that this community was a place that was safe for people to come and to pursue God and follow Jesus. I cannot tell you the number of people who have come to me and said, will I be safe here? People who have said, I really want to invite my friend, will they be safe here? Do you realize the indictment that that is upon the church of Jesus Christ, that that's the first question? Will I be safe? <sighs> my hope and my prayer, I want gay and lesbian and trans and bi folks who come to awaken to know that they will be safe, that they will not be the scapegoat. Amen, Brother Micah. It doesn't mean that, there, that we require uniformity in your conclusion. It doesn't mean that you all have to agree. But it does mean that we will walk with one another and treat one another with dignity and respect. That we will be with each other in a certain kind of way that is marked by the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. It does mean that we will walk with one another in humility. It does mean, well, it doesn't mean that love and friendship begins with a statement about your position. When do you do that? Ever? Do you show up to a party and you're like, hi, my name's Micah, seven-day literal creationist. <laughs> hi, my name's Micah. Jesus is coming back post-trib. <laughs> hi, my name's Micah. Trump. <laughs> when do you do that? Never! It doesn't make any sense. So to love and befriend and walk with someone doesn't enable or endorse any of their behaviors. It only means you love them and you affirm their God-given worth and dignity. Come on, people. So it means that we will befriend one another, that we will walk with each other. It means that when bridges that will bear the weight of truth and hard conversations have been built and are rooted in love, we will have them. People always ask me, well, well, when somebody comes and they're sleeping with their girlfriend, I mean, do you talk to them? And I say, no. They haven't invited me to speak into that. <laughs> right? 
There are places to have difficult conversations, especially as people who are following Jesus, where there is an ideal that is set before us that we are seeking after. And sometimes we miss that. And so sometimes there, are, there is time and a place for a hard conversation when there is a relationship that will bear the weight of that truth because otherwise it sounds like and is experienced as judgment and hypocrisy. You cannot do hard conversations without trust and relationship. So when that's present, that's what we do as Christians. That's spurring one another on to love and good deeds, to following Jesus faithfully. Yes, yes, and yes. Everything goes, no, it doesn't. There's an ideal. Now, the hard part is interpreting the ideal, right? But this will be a safe place, so long as I'm the pastor. Here's what I want to try and do in this series. We're going to explore today Galatians 5 and what does it mean to be free in Christ? What does it mean to, ex- and, and, and how do we inter- interpret and interact with and live in that freedom? And then next week, I can't believe I'm saying this, I'm going to attempt to preach Romans 1 from an affirming position. If someone affirms same-sex relationships, here's how they might interpret Romans 1. And then the same sermon, I'm going to try to teach Romans 1 from a non-affirming position. Here's how someone who does not affirm same-sex relationships and how they would read Romans 1. So if you would, please pray for me. (laughs) Please stand, if you will, Galatians chapter 5. Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, says this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Skip down to verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, for Jesus That was all of God's word. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Pray with me. God, here we are and here you are. Lead us, speak to us, invite us to be the kinds of people that you always dreamed us to be. The kind of community that you always hoped for us to be. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. We're halfway done. What is freedom in Christ and why does it matter on this issue of human sexuality? I will say off the, off the bat, the argument or the conversation Paul is having in Galatians chapter 1 is a, is a large one and I am not engaging it in full. You could critique me and say, well, you took a passage out of context, Micah. Fair. I don't think that what I'm about to say is betraying anything that Paul meant by what he said. So I'm taking Paul's idea of freedom and I'm applying it to our situation. I'm not engaging his original argument. That could be a fair critique. I will beat you to it. In order for us to understand how we're navigating this at Awaken, there are a couple of really important ideas that I want to talk about this morning. And they are freedom. What is it? What is it not? Essential. What's essential? And then is there a third way? Uh, That's the signs, right? We live in a world where binary is normal. These are the options. And there is no other way. It's this or that. I want to argue that there's another way. There's a higher level that we're being called to as a community. So first, what is freedom? Paul says, in Christ, we are free. 
He says, because you are in Christ, because you have said yes to the the gift of salvation that is found in the life and teachings, death and resurrection of Jesus, because you're in Christ, you're free. And you're free from something, and you're free for something. Now, Luther says it this way. By grace, God makes a person a perfectly Lord of all, subject to none, on the one hand, and on the other hand, a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Well, you can't say both. You can't have it both ways. What does he mean? In relation to sin and our brokenness, we are co-heirers of Jesus. Everything that's afforded to Jesus is afforded to us, and so what he's saying is, you are subject to none. You are Lord of all. You, you participate with Jesus in his victory over sin and brokenness, and you, therefore, are subject no longer to it. You're no longer a slave to sin, Paul says. So you are a perfectly Lord of all subject to none. You're free from sin because you're in Christ. And you're also free for something. For what? In Christ, you're free for Christian community and the world. Out of our love for God, we are free for the community and for the world. Said differently, freedom, according to Paul and how he's using it, is not a personal right. <laughs> Can I get in your American, America grill? <laughs> freedom, the way Paul's using it, is not how we talk about it. Your freedom is not for you. It doesn't afford you anything, actually. It's a gift you give to the community. It's a gift that you give away. Because you're in Christ... Because we're anchored around this, this thing, you extend freedom to others in certain circumstances. Paul talks about this in terms of meat sacrificed to idols, right? He says, listen, if you want to have a barbecue and that barbecue is filled with meat sacrificed to idols and you can do that and your conscience is fine, go for it. But if you can't and if you're with a brother or sister who can't, then community is first. You're free, but your freedom is for your neighbor. See? It's totally different than how we use it. So you're free from something, and for something. Our freedom, he even says it in Galatians, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, indulge yourself, your own desires, but rather serve one another humbly in love. That's the purpose of the freedom that you have in Christ for others and for the community. So he turns freedom on its head in some ways. Now here's the absolutely critical part and why it's important to us in human sexuality in this conversation. What is essential? What is essential? As we live in this freedom and we learn to use it in service of one another and out of our love for God, we ask this question, what is essential? The word essential, when used as a noun, means this. A thing that is absolutely necessary. So for something to be essential, it's absolutely necessary. Well, the next question becomes, for what? Right? Necessary for what? If it's essential, what is it necessary for? And we would answer that question in this conversation. What is essential or absolutely necessary for Christian faith? That's the question. What is absolutely necessary to uphold and retain the core of the Christian faith? What is essential and therefore absolutely necessary to be deemed Christian? In church history, the fathers and mothers called this orthodoxy, right belief. What is essential to assent to or believe to be Christian? So, case study. 
human sexuality, essential or non-essential? Can you, or is it absolutely necessary for a person to hold a certain view on human sexuality to be deemed a Christian? Said differently, can you still be a Christian and hold the opposing view? I think this is obvious, maybe it's not, but I would argue the answer to that question is yes. You can preserve and retain that which is essential and core to Christianity and have different opinions, convictions, on how one lives most faithfully in their sexuality. It doesn't mean that it isn't important. It's absolutely important. Otherwise, why would we be having this conversation? I don't know if you know this, but not very many churches are doing this. <laughs> Some would say this is like, a, you know, a perfect path to a whole bunch of people leaving. Or, you know, if you want a bunch of arguments and lots of meetings, do this series. I think it's Im incredibly important. That's why we're doing this. So to say something is not essential does not mean that it isn't important. It also does not mean that at the end of the day, one person might be right and one person might be wrong in that conviction. It doesn't mean that truth is relative. It doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean that there is not an ideal that God has in mind for human sexuality. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it's not essential that you agree on that in order to be Christian. Some other examples of this. A Christian response to violence and war. How does one who follows Jesus respond to violence or war? You read the scriptures and you come to the conclusion that in some cases, just war is possible. Just meaning like right war, not a just a war. <laughs> that just war is a potential. That in some cases, it is okay, it's not wrong, it's not sinful to engage in violence. Another person reads the same Bible, the same scriptures, because Authority of scripture is not what's at stake, but interpretation reads that Bible and comes to the conclusion that in no way, shape, or form is it ever okay for a Christian to respond with violence. Same Bible, following the same Jesus, coming to different conclusions on a non-essential matter. Predestination and free will. How does God work in the world? Is is it a blueprint? Is every single iota, every single molecular part of the galaxy and universe and everything that we know, is it determined by God? Does he know it all? Is it prescribed? Is it all a part of God's plan? That's the other way to say that. Or is it open? Is it more open? Is free will a real actual thing where your choices really are your choices? Same Bible, Two different people, both love Jesus, both love the scriptures, both are committed to the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures in their life, and they come to different conclusions on that matter. Not an essential. Follow me? This leads me to my final point. Is there a third way? You see, there are churches who on all sorts of non-essential matters make them essential, and for you to participate to be a voting member, to lead in that community, you have to tick all the boxes of non-essentials and be in uniformity on those beliefs. At Awaken, there is no statement of belief requiring assent or belief or agreement on the matter of human sexuality because it's not essential. 
Doesn't mean it isn't important. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have informed, thoughtful, prayerful, articulate, humble convictions on the matter. But we are not requiring everybody to agree on it. Because we recognize that through the course of study and through the course of history, there have been thoughtful, faithful, Jesus-loving people who love the scriptures and who love the Lord and who love the body who come to different conclusions on this. And in a world where there's all kinds of divisions already, and when the church has a serious PR problem, we figure, what if we just decided to say what's essential is essential and what's not essential is non-essential? And we'll agree on the things that are essential and do the work of the Lord in the world and do the work of the kingdom for the sake of the gospel with the hope that people might look at that and say, wow, how do they do that? Is there a third way? We live in a world of binaries where, where the reality or our norm is this or that, gay or straight, Republican, Democrat, CNN, Fox, cats, dogs. And we know the answer to that. <laughs> and we just assume this is normal. We assume that there's no other possibility. And gang, what I find just absolutely fascinating is that when Jesus is presented with binaries in the scriptures, more often than not, he's like, <laughs> and offers some kind of third way, some kind of higher level thinking that says, actually, you're kind of, you're, you're wandering around in the mire. Can I call you to a higher goal or purpose or essential, a higher way of being human? So, and this is straight-up covenant theology here. What we're trying to do is completely in line with the historic denomination that we find ourselves a part of, which I find to be very encouraging and inspiring. And gang, BT dubs, the wise person knows. Okay, binary, it's helpful at a time, for a time. When, when you're young, when your kids are young, black and white, binary is good. Do not cross the street. You will die. <laughs> That's a good thing. It's really a good thing. Rules are not bad. But the longer you live, the more you realize that binary is not always as, it's not the whole picture. How many old people do you know who've gotten to the end of their life and said, the older I get, the less I know? You think they're pulling the wool over our eyes? Or is there something there? The wise person knows that binary, while helpful at times and early on in one's development, is actually not always how the world presents itself and how reality is experienced. And maybe most fully in the being we call God. You see, the things that matter the most, we find a maddening amount of paradox and mystery in, do we not? Death, sex, God, and the, the further you go in, the more you realize, holy cats, it's not that simple, is it? We find a maddening amount of paradox in the things that matter most. So binary is helpful, but it's not always the, the end game. It's not always the whole truth. If we are free in Christ, if we're in Christ and we're free from sin and free for something... And human sexuality is a non-essential, 
then can we extend freedom to, in, freedom to our brother and sister when we disagree on matters that are not essential? That is as simply as I can put it. That's the path we're trying to walk. I will let you know people have left Awaken for that. Many of you are here because of that. This is not for everybody. This is actually a lot harder because it's not left, right, black, white, yes, no, either, or. Spiritual communities were never intended to be led by 20s and 30-year-olds. Historically, among humans on the planet, communities were led by their elders. Why? Because they're wiser. They're smarter. They've seen more. They know that binary is helpful at times, but it's not always the end game. We're going to do a series in a couple weeks called Wells and Fences, and I'm going to invite us to be this kind of church. And guess what we need more of? People over 40. BTW. Yeah. Hallelujah. By the way, I'm 39 turning 40. The average lifespan of American male is like 78 years old. I'm in my second half of life, y'all. You better recognize, you better start listening, because I'm an elder around here. <laughs> because we're in Christ. Let that sink in. You are in Christ. If you followed this Jesus, you're in Christ. Because you're in Christ, you're free from sin and free for what? Your brother and your sister. And so on matters that are not essential, can we extend freedom to one another? That's the ask. Augustine said, in essentials, unity, in doubtful matters, liberty, in all things, charity. In essentials, unity, in doubtful matters, or non-essentials, liberty, all things, charity. How you believe what you believe matters most. I'm just repeating Augustine and others. This is from a book called Living Faith, Reflections on Covenant Affirmations. And I, I want to make sure that you know that this is important and, and that it's rooted in the history of this denomination that I really have grown to love. The Covenant Church seeks to focus on what unites followers of Jesus rather than what separates them. The center of our commitment is a clear faith in Jesus Christ. The centrality of the word, necessity of new birth, commitment to the whole mission of the church, fellowship of believers, a conscious dependence on the spirit, form the parameters in which freedom in Christ is experienced. Here, followers of Christ find the security, because you're in Christ, you're secure, because you're in Christ, to offer freedom to one another on issues that might otherwise divide. That's where we're going. This is the path we're trying to walk. Let me close with this before we come to the table. Whatever you believe on this matter, whether you're side A or side B, affirming or not affirming, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I find it very hard to believe in a God who would get to the, at, on the other side would, there I am, I'm, line, I'm face to face, and it's all, all my beliefs are lined up, and God says to me, Micah, you had it so close on almost everything, but on the human sexuality one, you got it wrong. 
you're out. I don't know that that reflects God at all. If it does, then Jesus isn't the son of that God. You're going to be okay. You need not fear that you get it right. You need not be anxious that you are wrong. You might be. I bet you there's, if we lined up all the things that you believed about God right now, I guarantee you God would find one and be like, nope, not even close. <laughs> That's why it's faith. That's why it's called life. Because you don't see it all. You can't see it all. If you could, you would be God. Thank you very much. That's a very technical philosophy argument right there. So friends, be thoughtful. Be prayerful. Start studying. Start reading. Check out books from the library. May the Holy Spirit inform you. May scripture inform you. May your experienced reality of life inform you. And heaven forbid, your relationships inform your belief. May they all be out there. And may you hold a conviction on this matter. But how you do so, may it reflect the nature and the heart of God that we see in Jesus, which is founded in love. You and me were never intended to be the final say-sowers. This is Genesis 3. We were never intended to have that job. So just give it back to the only one who can do it well. And be free. You're free in Christ. You're free in Christ. This is a prayer that I wrote for myself. I'll close with it. And maybe it's something that reflects a bit of what you could pray. God, here's what I think. Based on Jesus and scripture and the spirit and science and what I know to be true from my lived experience. And if I'm wrong, forgive me. Correct me. Lead me to what's true and life-giving. Whatever mistakes I make, may I do so motivated by and rooted in love. And today, I intentionally and wholeheartedly say yes to and give my life to that which I believe is essential and central as I eat this bread and drink this cup. And I do so with my brothers and my sisters in Christ who are free from sin and for one another in the world. I'm going to ask John Mark and the band to come. I'll lead you into a time of silence. We do this because we recognize that I'm not as smart as I might think I am. I'm certainly not as smart as you might think I am. That God has probably more to say. And so part of prayer, part of being a community that prays, is that we carve time out every time we gather for silence. So I'm going to lead you into a time of silence for you to think and hear and listen and maybe just sit quietly to not be the one talking. And then we'll receive the Lord's table together. So God, as we enter this time of silence, would you speak to us? Would you turn on the lights? Would you convict us of any ways in which we hold beliefs in a way that don't reflect your heart?
Would you lead us closer and closer and closer to who you are? So Holy Spirit, speak. Here we are. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.